You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week and happy Oscars Sunday. If you want to tune in in the U.S., it's on at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on ABC. This week for two sentence movie reviews that I saw in a movie theater, we've got Mortal Kombat and Together Together. I saw these movies on the same day and they could have not been more different if I had tried to get two movies that were completely different from each other. Mortal Kombat is what it is. It's a popcorn movie, and if you like action movies, you'll like this movie. My film brain would like to tell you, however, that you could lift the main character out of this film, and the story would have pretty much been exactly the same, which isn't the mark of a great film, but you'll have a good time. Then Together Together is an independent film about a single middle-aged man and the platonic friendship he has with his surrogate. It's a very middle-of-the-road movie for me, but overall pretty good. I didn't particularly care for the ending, though. Anyway, on to today's episode. In honor of the biggest night in Hollywood, we're going back in time to talk about some memorable moments and controversies that have happened over the 92-year history of the Oscars. I didn't put them in any particular order. This is just a highlight reel of some fun, controversial, and downright strange things that have happened over the years curated by yours truly. I've watched the Oscars every year since like 97 or 98. Whichever year Titanic won, because I was super into Titanic, which came out when I was like seven and I saw it in theaters with my mother. So I'm going to add that to the list of inappropriate content I was exposed to before it was age appropriate. And that probably messed up my psyche and turned me into the person I am now. The majority of the Oscar ceremonies in the last 24 years that I've been watching it have been mild compared to some of the shenanigans that have occurred over the years, save for that whole 2017 debacle. You'll see. Well, you'll hear about it. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. I learned a great deal from a director named Ingmar Bergman. Often to be most eloquent is to be silent. You're quite right. Uh, The film we've just seen has said it all. I think we should uh, say that those nominated for the best performance by an actor are... Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Michael Caine in Sleuth. Laurence Olivier in Sleuth. Peter O'Toole in The Ruling Class. Paul Winfield in Sounder. The winner is... Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and The Godfather, Miss Kathleen Littlefeather. My name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache, and I'm president of the National 
Native American affirmative image First off, let's dive into some controversial moments. The Oscars has no shortage of them. For the first 44 ceremonies or so, the majority of acceptance speeches were void of political leanings or bringing awareness to any cause. Not surprising given that many of the filmmakers of this era had either seen or experienced the damage done to the entertainment industry by the McCarthy-era HUAC trials. But the 70s were a time of challenging the norm, and Marlon Brando brought that ideation to the Oscars. When you think of Marlon Brando, more often than not, one of two characters probably comes to mind. Either Stanley screaming Stella in A Streetcar Named Desire, or of course, him sitting behind a desk as Don Corleone in The Godfather, making offers people can't refuse. Well, Brando won Best Actor for his betrayal of the Corleone patriarch, but he was not the one that came to the stage. Instead, a young Native American woman named Sasheen Littlefeather, whom you heard speak at the break, took to the stage and refused the award on Brando's behalf. She explained that Brando had opted to boycott the award show to bring attention to the treatment of Native American people. Her statement was met with a few half-hearted applause and a greater chorus of boos. It's really hard to watch as a person who gets secondhand cringe really easily, but I am very impressed by her bravery to stand in front of a room of people like that and say something that angered a lot of people at the time. Brando was heavily criticized for the stunt after the fact, but he did bring in a change that many people have taken advantage of in the years since, the politically charged acceptance speech. And nobody took advantage of that, quite like documentarian Michael Moore. Now, based on my listener analytics, the majority of y'all were at least moderately sentient in the early noughties. And if not, you were at the very least alive when the U.S. went to war after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. After 9-11, a wave of patriotism had swept through America, and now the war that would become known as the War on Terror was newly waging overseas. Michael Moore was nominated in 2003 for his 2002 documentary film Bowling for Columbine, which dealt with the Columbine school shooting in 98 and gun culture in the United States as a whole. During his acceptance speech, Moore heavily critiqued the Bush administration, calling the era, quote, fictitious times, alluding to the whole Florida election debacle from the 2000 election, and then topped it off by making opinions on the war public, something that was considered very taboo at the time. Quote, we are against this war, Mr. Bush. Shame on you. Moore declared as the crowd instantly turned on him, booing until the music played him off the stage and instantaneously into Oscar history. Master of Ceremonies that year, Steve Martin, later attempted to ease the evening's tension by telling the audience that some nice security guys were helping Michael Moore into the trunk of his limo. Fifteen years later, when receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards Gala, Moore was allowed to finish his speech from that night, encouraging young people to take up cameras and, quote, fight the power. He also added, quote, 15 years later now, tonight, we are not only still at war, but we have a president who has declared war on our democracy and war on us. Keep picking up those cameras, everyone here in this room, because the people gathered here tonight, you may be America's last line of defense. 
And back to the 70s, we've got another controversial moment that happened at the 46th Annual Academy Awards. Conceptual artist and photographer Robert Opel managed to sneak into the Academy Awards ceremony disguised as a journalist and subsequently jogged across the Oscar stage in his birthday suit, flashing a peace sign and interrupting co-host David Niven. Niven laughed it off, joking, quote, well, ladies and gentlemen, that was almost bound to happen. But isn't it fascinating to think that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. Later, some evidence arose suggesting that Opal's appearance was facilitated by the show's producer, Jack Haley Jr., as a stunt. Robert Metzler, the show's business manager, believed that the incident had been planned in some way. He said that during the dress rehearsal, Niven had asked Metzler's wife to borrow a pen so he could write down that famous ad lib. Later, producer Alan Carr, who will come up again a little later in the episode, asked Opal to streak at a party for ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev. Shockingly, Opal, who was 33 at the time, wasn't arrested or even kicked out of the Oscars. Instead, he was given a post-telecast press conference, just like the evening's winners. Quote, you know, people shouldn't be ashamed of being nude in public, he told the reporters. Besides, it is a hell of a way to launch a career. After his infamous sprint, however, Opal drifted back into obscurity, only to resurface again in national headlines when he was tragically shot to death in 1979. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's one of the great legends of Hollywood. She's back with us tonight, Miss Snow White. Good evening. Oh, good evening, Mr. Archer. It is so exciting to be here tonight. I'm a little late, though. Can you tell me how to get into the theater? That's easy, Snow. Just follow the Hollywood stars. Follow the Hollywood stars? I don't know about you, but I am a chronic sufferer of secondhand embarrassment. If I wave back at someone who was waving to someone behind me, my day is shot. That briefly awkward interaction between strangers whom immediately forgot about it within minutes will likely keep me up that night. So why don't we go through some others whom had to dance with that awkward devil? While in recent years the Academy has been trying to make the ceremony shorter, there was a time when the opposite was an issue. When the final award of the 1959 Oscars was given out 20 minutes early, producers scrambled to figure out how to fill the airtime, leaving co-host Jerry Lewis to his own comedic devices. Standing center stage amongst a sea of presenters and award winners, Lewis announced that they'd be singing 300 choruses of There's No Business Like Show Business before watching a Three Stooges program to, quote, cheer up the losers. He then politely hijacked the conductor's baton and led the orchestra in song until NBC finally cut to a sports review show for the rest of the time. Guess the suits at NBC weren't Big Stooges fans. Opening numbers have varied in quality over the years. There's highs like Hugh Jackman's 2010 Oscars opener, where he sang about all the nominated films using homemade props. There was the polarizing, like the section of Seth MacFarlane's opening monologue in 2013 that included the song, We Saw Your Boobs. And then there's just the downright awful. Now, I have watched this one many years ago, and the cringe was so bad, I had to watch it in spurts. I tried to show it to some friends last weekend until they begged me to turn it off before we even got to the halfway mark. You heard the top of it at the break. At the 1989 Academy Awards, the opening number was so terrible. 
it ruined the producer's career. Now, most people my age know Rob Lowe as Chris Traeger from Parks and Recreation, but the dude used to be a teen idol in the 80s and one time Snow White Serenader. You heard me. Well, Rob, then 24, had gotten into a lot of trouble, and rightfully so, due to a sex tape scandal involving an underage girl that had happened a few months prior. So when the Academy came to him to essentially play a Prince Charming type, Lowe later recounted, quote, I was a good soldier and did it. What happened next was 11 minutes of pure cringy agony. The show opened with Snow White, a.k.a poor actress Eileen Bowman, a struggling young actress who believed that this was going to be her big night, the one that turned her into a movie star. You heard the opening of this at the break. After I cut it off, she begins making her way down the aisles of the Shrine Auditorium, following the Hollywood stars, a follow the yellow brick road nod, then singing a painfully high-pitched rendition of I Only Have Eyes For You, which was changed to I Only Have Stars For You, which included greetings to horrified celebrities like Dennis Hoffman, Tom Hanks, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Sigourney Weaver. It hurts my soul to watch this poor actress. I feel so bad for her. Next, dancing tables recreate the post-prohibition Coconut Grove nightclub, and Merv Griffith performed his classic 1950 song, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts, just to be as on the nose as possible. Then Merv introduced a slew of old Hollywood talent who just look utterly baffled to be there. 50-50 chance they may have been mildly tranquilized to get them there. They dressed up Roy Rogers and Dale Evans in what I can only describe as thrift store cowboy and cowgirl outfits for their intro. The, the weird part is the intro has nothing to do with the rest of anything. It's just, hey, look at these old people that we got to be a part of this. They serve absolutely no purpose. Some of them dance, but most of them just kind of wave. It's so it's so weird. Then, God help him, Snow White's blind date, a.k.a. Rob Lowe, arrives at the Coconut Grove. Rob Lowe has many talents, and the dude hasn't aged in like 30 years. But one thing he cannot do is sing. He's got the musical prowess of your drunk former frat boy buddy singing Gangster's Paradise at a bad karaoke bar after three shots of bottom shelf vodka and four Coors Lights. But there he was, struggling to stay on key as he duetted with that poor actress dressed in the Snow White costume. Their set included Proud Mary, of which its lyrics were changed to bring up Snow White story, and later they asked to keep the cameras rolling, rolling, rolling when they should have been shut off, 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 and the footage burned. By the time a kickline of movie theater ushers sang, whenever you're down in the dumps, try putting on Judy's red pumps, the audience had endured all they could take. As the camera panned the room, Robert Downey Jr.'s dead eyes pretty much sum up everything. Every time you thought it was over, nope, just a scene change. After the ceremony, the opening sequence was crucified by pretty much everyone. The New York Times referred to it as, quote, a permanent place in the annals of Oscar embarrassments. Now, in 1989, Disney didn't own ABC, and they were none too pleased to see their version of Snow White being degraded in such a manner without permission. They are mad territorial about their IPs, and they sued the Academy over it. 17 members of Hollywood's upper echelon, including Gregory Peck, Julie Andrews, Paul Newman, and Billy Wilder, published a scathing open letter to the Academy calling that year's Oscars, quote, an embarrassment to both the Academy and the entire motion picture industry. That's how you called somebody out before social media, kids. 
Alan Carr, the show's producer, whose career had already been in a downward spiral, never worked in Hollywood again. Links to the openers in the show notes you know you want to. Now, while he's basically America's dad, Tom Hanks did a big ol' oopsie back in 1993. Hanks won Best Actor that year for his role in Philadelphia, in which he played a closeted gay lawyer who contracts AIDS and is fired from and then sues his law firm when the telltale lesions, known as Kaposi sarcomas, appear on the man and are noticed by a colleague. Philadelphia has its own special place in cinematic history, as it was one of the first mainstream films to not only address homosexuality and homophobia, but the HIV-AIDS crisis as a whole. Hank's name was called, and he took to the stage to accept his award. During his speech is where the aforementioned oopsie occurs. When thanking his high school drama teacher, Hanks referred to him as one of the, quote, finest gay Americans. Only problem with that was, Tom's high school drama teacher was still in the closet professionally. While Hanks' teacher was overall fine with it, the incident would go on to inspire the film In and Out, which released in 1997 and starred Matt Dillon in the Tom Hanks role and Kevin Kline as the teacher. The film takes on a much more farcical path than the reality of Hanks' actual teacher's experience. At the 6th Annual Academy Awards in 1934, Oscar host Will Rogers revealed the winner of the Best Director Award by casually saying, Come up and get it, Frank. Unfortunately, two Franks had been nominated for the award that night. The other Frank, Lady for a Day director Frank Capra, had nearly reached the open dance floor before he realized the spotlight had spun around to illuminate the actual winner, Cavalcade director Frank Lloyd. Capra would bounce back to win Best director the following year for it happened one night, but he took the loss pretty hard at the time. Quote, I wish I could have crawled under the rug like a miserable worm, he wrote in his autobiography. When I slumped in my chair, I felt like one. All my friends at the table were crying. I can't believe he went back to his seat. The Oscars weren't televised back then, and if I had been him, I would have pieced the hell out of the Ambassador Hotel and walked into the sea. But that is not the worst version of this by a long shot. Most of you fans of modern cinema probably already know what I'm alluding to. The cringiest moment in recent Oscar history has got to be from the 2017 ceremony. At the end of the night, when it came time to award the night's biggest prize, Best Picture, Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty were tasked with announcing the award. After the nominees were announced once more, Warren opened the envelope and, with the power of hindsight, is clearly confused with what he's seeing. Faye, apparently not enjoying the awkward pause as Warren struggles with what he's reading, takes the envelope from him and declares La La Land as Best Picture. The cast and crew of the film took to the stage, and as the producers began their speeches for about two and a half minutes, you can start seeing some stage crew running around in the background. If you watch it, just look for the telltale headsets. Something's clearly gone amiss. In the middle of his speech, one of the stagehands gave La La Land producer Jordan Horowitz an envelope. He realizes that a horrible mistake has been made, and it is Moonlight, not La La Land, that has won the prize. What happens next is an awkward exchange of awards between the film's producers. Backstage, the press room exploded. Master of Ceremonies that evening, Jimmy Kimmel, quickly took to the mic and joked, I blame Steve Harvey for this, in reference to Harvey's 2015 flub, in which he named the wrong Miss Universe winner. So what the hell happened? Well... 
it was the accountant's fault. PricewaterhouseCoopers have been responsible for handling the Oscar ballots and the printing of the winners on cards and the placement of them in the envelopes for 83 of the previous 89 award ceremonies. Two copies of each envelope are made, placed in briefcases, and given to two accountants whom arrive at the award show in different vehicles. Well, I think I read somewhere that they also take different routes, but I couldn't find anywhere to concretely substantiate that. During the ceremony, the accountants are stationed on opposite sides of the stage and take turns handing out envelopes. The accountant handing out the envelope for Best Picture accidentally gave Warren and Faye the duplicate Best Actress envelope, and that award had gone to La La Land's Emma Stone. Faye, reading the card after Warren opened it, ignored the fact that the actress's name was listed on the card as well. Oopsie doodles. PricewaterhouseCooper issued an apology and the accountants responsible for the mistake were fired from the show, though not the firm. The likely culprit for the mistake? The accountants taking selfies with famous people. I'm really especially happy that I'm chosen to present this particular plaque. To me, it seems more than just a plaque of gold. It opens the doors of this room, moves back the walls, and enables us to embrace the whole of America, an America that we love, an America that almost alone in the world today recognizes and pays tribute to those who give their best, regardless of creed, race, or color. It is with the knowledge that this entire nation will stand and salute the presentation of this plaque that I present the Academy Award for the best performance of an actress in supporting roles during 1939 to Hattie McDaniel. Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Science, fellow members of the motion picture industry and honored guests. This is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I want to thank each one of you who had a part in selecting me for one of the awards. For your kindness, it has made me feel very, very humble. And I shall always hold it as a beacon for anything that I may be able to do in the future. I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. My heart is too full to tell you just how I feel. And may I say thank you and God bless you. Well, we've talked about some controversies and we've talked about some of the stranger things that have happened at the Oscars over the years. But let's end this episode on a high note and talk about a few of the most inspiring moments ever to occur at the Academy Awards. The 71st Oscars were all about Italian actor-director Roberto Benigni. His Holocaust comedy-drama film Life is Beautiful won three Oscars that night. Best Actor, Best Foreign Language Film, and Best Original Score. When Sofia Ren declared Benigni the winner of the Foreign Language Award, he promptly stood on top of his chair and waved his hands in the air with glee. Steven Spielberg helped him keep his balance. For a moment, it looks like Benigni's about to get to the stage via the backs of the seats, but instead he hops, yes, hops, up to the stage. Quote, this is the moment of joy, and I want to kiss everybody, he said. The, the clip is such a moment of just pure, unadulterated happiness, and it's definitely a YouTube video to keep on the back burner if you ever have a bad day. I don't think I have ever been that happy as that man is in that moment. It is something to behold. 
The next one I actually learned about last weekend because I know I watched this ceremony but didn't appreciate the gravity of the words that were said at that evening when I was 11, as I do now in my 30s. In 2001, director Steven Soderbergh, whom is a producer for this year's Oscar ceremony, won Best Director for his film Traffic. In a break from traditional speeches where you thank your agents and fellow filmmakers and everybody who worked on the movie and yada 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 yada, Soderbergh instead said he'd thank them privately and proceeded to think, quote, anyone who spends part of their day creating. It is a stunning speech from someone who was hammered as he was not expected to win that evening. He said later he was slamming double vodka cranberries at each commercial break that night. Best director typically comes towards the end of the evening, so he must have felt fantastic. We can all only hope to aspire to be that coherent, that drunk. Hattie McDaniel and her fellow Persons of Color cast members dealt with a load of segregation on the set of Gone with the Wind before Clark Gable threatened not to work until the set was desegregated. They were also not allowed to attend the film's premiere in segregated Atlanta. Things weren't much better in Hollywood at the time. When McDaniel won supporting actress for her portrayal of Mammy, she was forced to sit in the back of the venue due to the club being segregated. She almost wasn't let into the ceremony at all until word got out that the actress had won the award and the optics of her not being there was something the Academy did not want to contend with. In her speech, McDaniel said, quote, I sincerely hope I shall always be a credit to my race and to the motion picture industry. It would be 51 years until the next African-American won the prize, when Whoopi Goldberg took home the Oscar in the supporting actress category as well for the film Ghost. 11 years after that, Halle Berry would be the first African-American woman to win Best Actress in 2002. Hattie is someone we will definitely talk about in the future as her career was a struggle after that evening as she became a victim of typecasting in Hollywood. But for that bright, shining moment, Hattie McDaniel was at the apex of her field. One of these days, we'll also talk about Charlie Chaplin in greater detail. But what you need to know for this story is that Charlie, whom was born in England, ruffled a lot of feathers in the U.S. government, especially around the communist witch hunts of his industry in the 1940s. Charlie was very outspoken politically, and J. Edgar Hoover was not a fan. When Charlie was hit with a paternity suit, the courts declared he was responsible for the child of his former girlfriend that anyone with a calendar could deduce that she couldn't possibly be his. The day after leaving New York by ship to promote his 1952 film Limelight in the UK, United States Attorney General James P. McGannery revoked Chaplin's re-entry permit and stated that he would have to submit to an interview concerning his political views and moral behavior to re-enter the US. Even though there was no real case against him and he would have very likely been allowed to re-enter the United States after jumping through the hoops, Chaplin cut ties instead and said, Settled in Switzerland. Why did you put this in the happy section, Caitlin? Well, it's because of what the Academy did 20 years later in 1972. Chaplin, now quite weak after suffering a series of strokes, was contacted by the Academy to make amends and award him with a lifetime achievement recognition. Chaplin was initially hesitant about accepting, but ultimately decided to return to the U.S. for the first time in 20 years. 
At the gala, Chaplin was given a 12-minute standing ovation, the longest in the Academy's history. Visibly emotional, Chaplin accepted his Lifetime Achievement Award for, quote, the incalculable effect he has had in making motion pictures the art form of this century. Quote, words seem so futile, so feeble, Chaplin said. I can only say thank you for the honor of inviting me here. Following his brief speech, the audience got back on their feet when Chaplin put on his trademark bowler hat and cane. There are hundreds of moments over the years I could have mentioned this week, but these are some of my favorites. If you want to look into any more memorable Oscar moments, the Academy's YouTube channel is rife with clips. Link is in the bio. Oh, thank you so much. An emotional moment for me. And words seem so futile, so feeble. I can only say that thank you for the honor of, of inviting me here. And oh, you're wonderful, sweet people. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me with questions at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page and a Venmo page, the links of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help me out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check out the link in the show notes. Next week, a brief history on the animated film to kick off a month focused on the art of animation. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.